Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, What We Now Know About COVID-19, Revised Guidelines for People Living with Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach some of you on the call today. We have over 351 participants on the call, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, Germany, Iraq, Philippines, Poland, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And today's program uh, is uh, supported by Seattle Genetics, an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, before the program starts, um, I do want to um, ask you a few questions. Those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions, and you'll be able to yes-no questions, and they'll just take a few moments to complete, just so we have a sense of what you know coming into the program. So the first question is, I know how to protect myself and loved ones from COVID-19, and you either answer that yes or no. And the second question is, I know how to cope with quarantine fatigue. And two questions, yes or no. The third question is, I talk with loved ones in the healthcare team about my wishes and healthcare directives. And again, yes or no. My fourth question, and then we'll start, is I talk with my children and teens about coping with COVID-19, yes or no. Okay, well, I want to thank you all for participating in this polling. And now um, we're going to, we have a lot of speakers on today's program and, and really wonderful speakers. And uh, I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, Dr. Richard Grawler. Dr. Grawler is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawler will be presenting an overview of what we know and don't know about COVID-19 and where to find reliable information regarding this pandemic and its treatment. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grawler. Well, hello and thank you, Carolyn. I'm uh, Richard Grawler. I'm a medical oncologist at Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I have the pleasure of introducing this program for today on November 16th, 2020 which will discuss many aspects of the COVID-19 or coronavirus infection, including updated information. <clears throat> I think we're very fortunate to have a very knowledgeable and helpful panel on the call today. I would call them the A-team in all regards, and I look forward to their presentations. In addition to introducing the program, Carolyn has asked me to quickly address what we know and what we don't know. 
Dr. Wong will be discussing many aspects about a COVID vaccine, but quickly, what we know is that there has been very good news even today, even preliminary, about the strong potential for great help from vaccines. But what we also know is that this is no time to take one's guard down, just the opposite. We appear to have light at the end of the tunnel, so we need to be very careful at this time while awaiting the vaccine. What we don't know is how soon the vaccine will be widely available so that everyone on this call can receive it. Since many but not all will receive benefit from the vaccine, it's vital that the vaccine is received by nearly everyone. So we must continue to be safe and use the good protective measures. And this is particularly important even in small gatherings as many of the holidays approach. What we know is that being knowledgeable about COVID is helpful. The terms surrounding the virus can be a bit confusing, and you may hear three terms discussed, coronavirus, COVID-19, and SARS-CoV-2. The name of the illness is COVID-19. The CO part is for coronavirus. The VI part stands for virus, while the D stands for disease. And of course, 19 is for the year 2019, when it was first identified. The actual virus that causes the problem is somewhat confusingly named SARS-CoV-2, which means that this is related to, but not identical, to the virus that caused the SARS disease from nearly 17 years ago. When you get a test to see if you have COVID-19, it tests for that specific SARS-CoV-2 virus itself. As you're probably aware, there are several different tests available that have some differences but there are only two basic goals for the tests. The first type of test is a diagnostic one to see if a person has the virus right now, the so-called swab, usually a nasal swab, or sometimes a saliva test. The second type of test is a blood test to see if one has developed antibodies from recent infection with the virus or whether these antibodies can still be found at some time after having experienced COVID illness. This blood test may also imply the likelihood of some degree of immunity for that individual. What we don't know, and what is still being worked out from the antibody blood test, is how long-lasting immunity might be. What we know is that some people can have the virus without having symptoms. This is why testing is helpful to identify asymptomatic people and, uh, who may be able to transmit the infection. Of course, for many people, there are indeed symptoms. When a person first gets the illness, there are a variety of possible early symptoms. Most commonly is a fever, body aches, and fatigue, often accompanied by a dry cough. Fewer people also have gastrointestinal issues as well, including nausea and diarrhea. But most common is the cough, fever, and fatigue. There are other issues, including rashes, especially in younger individuals, and a rarer but important immunologic presentation in some children and adolescents. The impact of these symptoms varies in different people from quite mild to much more. While anyone can be very troubled by COVID-19, no matter what age, at greatest risk are older individuals, those with obesity and those with other important medical conditions, and Dr. Leonard will discuss this. In terms of symptoms, what we're most concerned about and what particularly raises a red flag is increasing shortness of breath. 
If symptoms are mild, then home care with ordinary medicines such as Tylenol are fine. But with shortness of breath, formal medical care needs to be consulted right away. If you're in doubt, you should always call your doctor for advice. I'll just review a few of the important safety measures. First is social distancing. All of us are now aware of this term, being at least six feet or two meters from others, and in many states and countries about isolating at home. These protections are true for all and even more vital for those at elevated risk. Staying home as much as possible is really good advice to limit the spread and reduce personal risk. Dr. Fleischman will discuss the increased use of televisits by your oncology team, which is directed at keeping patients safe while maintaining good anti-cancer care when televisits are appropriate. Studies have shown that the virus can live for many hours on many surfaces, but we should not lose sight of the fact that person-to-person -person respiratory spread is the main risk uh, of spreading this infection, as the CDC has recently emphasized. Indeed, cleaning surfaces with potent chemicals such as bleach or strong alcohol or products like Lysol remains important. Good hand washing with soap and water is excellent, frequently and for at least 20 seconds after any possible contacts. The soap need not be so-called antibacterial soap, just regular soap and follow the 20-second thorough hand washing. If soap and water are not available, alcohol hand sanitizers with about 60 to 70% alcohol are a good measure. Second, masks are very helpful. Over the mouth, and yes, over the nose, please. The typical surgical mask or the cloth, perhaps homemade mask, generally protects others against the person who's wearing it with some additional protection for the one who's wearing it as well. Everyone close by needs to wear a mask just like we all do in the hospital. So for your patients, so for our patients and for your family members at particular risk, including those with cancer and those who may be undergoing treatment, we have to insist that those nearby wear masks, period. Please recall that after handling such a mask, you should wash your hands as they might have been exposed to the outside of the mask by touching it. It would then be good to sanitize the mask or wash it if it's a cloth mask or leave it alone for a few days. The so-called N95 mask is more protective for the individual, but they still are, remain in short supply. We must avoid others who have the infection. This is not easy to do in the home, but it's a priority. Every family needs to think about a plan for your own home as to how to handle the situation if a member of the household needs to isolate or begins to show symptoms or is known to have the infection. This includes the person with cancer and any others in the home. This certainly should start discussion concerning excellent communication about many matters within your family, and Dr. Nelson will discuss issues in this area in important detail. Reliable information is so important at this time. In fact, that is why we're all involved in this program, and we hope that cancer care will continue to be a useful and reliable resource for you. All of the basic recommendations that I just mentioned make good sense. My colleagues in the following presentations will discuss several key topics with practical advice for individuals and families with cancer. Dr. Weiner will also discuss how to help children and teens in the family who are undergoing a particularly difficult and confusing time in their lives at present. Later in the program, Ms. Chatelian will discuss about resources for getting the latest information. 
Our panel will be discussing a lot of findings, and we recognize that you may have questions. We'll be happy to discuss more about these and all related issues when the question period begins later in the program. And now I'll turn the program back to Carolyn Messner, and we'll look forward to the presentations by my colleagues. Carolyn? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grella. That was excellent and wonderful overview and to start the program, we setting the tone for today's program. Thank you. And um, our next speaker is Dr. John Leonard. Dr. Leonard is Senior Associate Dean for Innovation and Initiatives, Executive Vice Chair, Wild Department of Medicine, Richard T. Silver, Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Wild Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian. Dr. Leonard will be addressing COVID-19 and people living with cancer. Are there increased risks and how to protect yourself and loved ones from COVID-19? It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Leonard. Well, thank you, Dr. Messner, and it's a pleasure to be here today as part of this distinguished panel and uh, to cover this important topic. So the issue of people living with cancer and their risk for COVID-19 is a complicated one. Um, we do know, and, and I would say that the, the, the clear information that we have is limited, but, but I'll, I'll cover some of the high points. On the other hand, there are some assumptions we can make about patients that are dealing with cancer and their risk of COVID that I think help guide what we do and how uh, one can protect oneself. So we know that patients at greater risk of COVID uh, complications, and there are two parts of this. One is how do you avoid contracting the virus or being exposed to the virus? And then the second part is, and, and that's what we'll come back to in a minute, the other part is obviously if you get the virus, are you at greater risk for having severe disease or life-threatening disease? So the the complicated part of this is that uh, obviously, there are many people out in the community that are exposed to COVID, and testing, depending on where you are, depending on whether or not you have symptoms, depending on what you have access to, can be in some cases quite available and in other cases quite limited or maybe even not pursued by the person because they're not having any symptoms or not having any reason to go get a test. And so it, it can be a little bit difficult to estimate uh, all of these issues. Patients who have COVID uh, infection are uh, at greater risk of more severe disease if they fall into a few different categories, and I think by now many of you have heard of this. Older patients seem to have uh, a greater risk. Patients that are overweight tend to have a greater risk of more severe disease. Uh, and patients that have other medical conditions, particularly respiratory-related conditions or other uh, general conditions that might uh, compromise their overall ability to tolerate uh, an infection or uh, to go through the complications and manage the complications. And so while this is not universal for patients that are living with cancer, many patients with cancer have some compromise in their overall situation. Many patients that uh, have cancer are older, have other medical problems, and may, uh, because of having to deal with their cancer or deal with the treatment of cancer, may, uh, may have some sort of compromise in their overall medical condition. And so I think it's, it's safe to say that patients with cancer are likely to be at or at risk of being uh, at a greater risk of getting ill from COVID disease. So the take-home point of that is that I think that it's safe to say that 
cancer patients, like everyone else, but perhaps a little bit more than everyone else, uh, should try to avoid uh, dealing with COVID disease. Now, that being said, um, cancer patients, and, and many of you know this from your own situations, are often very good at following precautions, very good at uh, being careful with themselves. Many patients on therapy uh, know what it's like and commonly practice avoiding crowds uh, and, and avoiding infection risk and just being careful about what they do. And I, I would say that many cancer patients uh, are taking this more seriously than many people in the general population and are being more prone and more likely uh, to take precautions. And the fact that you're on this call suggests that you may be better, uh, better uh, informed and obviously more motivated uh, to get information and to act on information than many, pa many members of the general public. And so I think that's one good thing and one thing that you can do. And I think in, in some way is, I don't want to say reassuring, but at least encouraging that, that, that patients are taking this uh, seriously. Some of the information that we have on patients who are in the hospital, and remember that most patients with COVID cancer or no cancer are, are being managed and taken care of outside the hospital and may not be that sick at all from it or may be able to uh, be managed uh, without coming into the hospital. Um, uh, so those patients that come into the hospital, however, with cancer, tend to have a higher risk. And so, again, that's another reason. It doesn't mean that if you happen to have COVID and happen to have cancer that you're, you're definitely in a, in a risky situation, but it is something that uh, is a little bit more concerning and does tell us that cancer patients probably should be taking uh, greater precautions in the big picture. So I think the rule of thumb and take home about are there increased risk this really depends on your own situation. It depends on many different variables. Are you in the middle of treatment? Uh, are you not in the middle of treatment? Uh, and many of your other comorbid or, or other existing conditions uh, that you might have that might, uh, again, complicate uh, this risk in part. So what can you do about this? So I think this really falls into two different categories. One is about your cancer treatment. And your cancer treatment, if one believes, and if you're someone who's in the middle of your treatment for your underlying cancer, that uh, and, and that's an unavoidable thing. You can't pick the time where uh, you're dealing with cancer and needing to have cancer treatment. But there are some things that you and your doctor should be thinking about from the standpoint of, of modifying your therapy or adjusting your therapy in some cases to either deal with, to, to minimize your risk from uh, COVID-related illness. I think it's important to know that it is very safe to be in the hospital if you need to get cancer treatment, if you need to see your doctor, you know, you should not um, uh, avoid the hospital. You can come in, you can get treated, you can get treated in the office, you can be admitted to the hospital if you need it. All medical facilities are really taking this very seriously. On the other hand, uh, some of them, unfortunately, are facing capacity limits and, and other issues uh, based on what's going on in the country. But for the most part, patients with cancer are able to get their care, and obviously the details of that need to be closely coordinated with your, your doctor and your care team, but the general rule of thumb is don't avoid cancer treatment uh, because you're worried about COVID. 
uh, get your the cancer treatment that you need um, despite COVID. And that's something that cancer centers and physicians and care teams are really focused on trying not to uh, to defer therapy or compromise cancer therapy because of COVID. That being said, for some people in some situations, there may be alternative treatments. You might be able to cut back on treatment, uh, uh, delay treatment in some cases. Again, that needs to be done very carefully. Change treatment a little bit. Um, certain treatments are uh, are things that uh, can be given by mouth rather than IV. That might be a little more convenient. So there are different twists that depending on your situation, you should talk about with your doctor to see should we make any modifications. And in some cases, it's going to be, no, let's just give you the best treatment and plow ahead and go ahead and give you the treatment that you need. On the other hand, it may be, yes, we have some options here and let's take a chance or, or make an adjustment, I should say, to uh, try to avoid COVID-related uh, issues. And then finally, and I've left the least amount of time for this, I mean, I think that the general rule of thumb that people should be following, and I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to this and other speakers will touch on it, you need to be social distancing, you need to be wearing a mask, you need to avoid crowds. I think the general public uh, health guidance that's out there is something that cancer patients should be especially paying attention to and following. And while many of these things are not absolute, there may not be answers to the questions. questions patients ask me questions every day, and it's not one right answer. It's well, you could be a little safer, a little more conservative and do this way, but it's not necessarily wrong if you do it that way, but the optimal thing would be to be more uh, cautious or there are uh, obviously other things in your life that you need to balance at times. But in general, cancer patients should be erring on the side of, of social distancing, washing hands a lot, avoiding crowds, uh, avoiding uh, contact with extra people if you don't have to do that, and obviously wearing masks uh, very commonly. And so that, those are a couple of points, I think, to take away, and I'm sure we'll come back to some of these issues during the question period. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Leonard. That was outstanding and, and wonderful information. And I, you're right, we will come back to these, and there will be a time for Q&A. So um, thank you so much. Um, appreciate this uh, very much. And our next speaker um, is uh, Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is a professor, Cutaneous Cancers Medical Oncology, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing how might a vaccine work and social distancing masks and gloves. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. And it's a pleasure and indeed an honor to be able to speak to you today uh, about uh, the talk, topic about how might a vaccine work. In reality, uh, what we're really trying to do is to make your body recognize something which is not you. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about what, what we're trying to do here. We're trying to get your immune system to react against this uh, coronavirus. Your immune system is not one thing. It's not one organ. It is, a, it is an entire system, a conglomeration of multiple organs, like your spleen, your liver, your lymph nodes, the bone marrow, your thymus, amongst others. So it's one entire system and the whole idea of the system uh, and why it's put together is to differentiate between what's you and not you. 
and 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 if if it recognizes something as not belonging to you, it will it will rise up, fight, and and remove this thing from your body with prejudice. So what is the thing that we're trying to do? We're trying to get to recognize a, this coronavirus as something that's foreign. And one of the ways of, of doing that is to really make your body uh, use a vaccine and, and get your body to recognize this as being foreign. Ultimately, what you really want to do is to get uh, uh, your body to recognize foreign protein. So what's protein? Protein are the structural stuff. If you, uh, it is a stuff of life. It's the stuff that makes up um, uh, the substance. For instance, egg white is a protein. Your skin is, is made up of proteins, and so on and so forth. Your cells are made up of proteins. It's an essential building block. And so when we talk about coronavirus, corona having spikes, those spikes are made of proteins. The, the virus is particle itself made of proteins. So at the end of the day, the, the end result is to get your body to recognize these proteins. So we now know that there are uh, ways of doing this. And how do you do that? Well, there are multiple ways of doing that. One way is to, uh, to actually get the virus particle itself attenuated and then use that as a, 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 as a way of getting your body to recognize that. That is a, a, a strategy that, that has almost centuries' worth of approach. So basically uh, using a, uh, an actual virus particle, inactivating it, denaturing it, and introducing that into the body through, uh, through injection, uh, uh, for example, is one way of doing that. Another way of doing that is to actually have the protein itself. Um, uh, so early in the coronavirus uh, epidemic, uh, the uh, sequence, the actual building blocks of the virus was published and shared to the world. And so um, knowing that, we're able to actually construct protein. So there are vaccines which are made uh, uh, of proteins that, that are similar to those found in the corona itself, in the spikes of the, pro, of the virus. And then by introducing that into someone's body, the idea is to have your body's immune system react against those things uh, uh, that are made up of the spikes of the, of the coronavirus. So that's one. The one that has the most interest uh, moving forward is to, to use uh, things like uh, mRNA. So what's that? mRNA is something your body uses to make protein. And so by introducing mRNAs into your body, the idea is that your body will then use those mRNAs and will serve as a factory to make viral proteins. And so what happens is this is a way of vaccinating people and having their bodies make the protein and then having that body's immune system act against it. So there are multiple ways to get at this. And, and if you look at what the Wall Street Journal published uh, about a month ago, using data that was current as of um, uh, October 19th of 2020, uh, they point out that there are over 200 vaccines currently in, in development around the world. And when we test vaccines, we use uh, you know, things like phase one trial, phase two, phase three trials. What it is, it talks about how advanced they are. And in essence, uh, phase one trial means using it for the first time or testing the first time in people. Where, and phase three trials is the most advanced trials in which we test whether the, the, the proteins and the doses and the schedule that, uh, of this vaccination um, uh, works and is safe to, to be give to people. And there are now uh, at least 10 clinical trials which are in phase three right now today. And these are things that are ongoing and information is coming out little by little and bit by bit. And so um, 
there's been some press announcements in the last week, which has really given some uh, folks excitement. Uh, some company, Moderna, for example, has reported recently in the last day or so a 94.5% efficacy of the vaccine. And just before that, last week, Pfizer uh, pointed out a 90% efficacy in a vaccine. And, um, you know, I'll leave it to my uh, expert panel to flesh it out a bit um, uh, as we go into the Q&A session. But these are promising numbers, but they must be, must be taken in context. Now, what do we do with this information, and, and how do we use it? We know that the vaccine development is going full tilt. We know that this is something which is already yielding some very interesting results. But I want to point out to you that there is no such thing as a 100% uh, efficacious medicine of any type, be it vaccine or anything. And, of course, we know that, uh, that the vaccine uh, depends on you, the individual, uh, mounting an immune response against the, the vaccine in order to be protected. And we all have individual characteristics uh, which can influence that. So we know that, that there's going to be less than 100% efficacy. So what that really means is that uh, the, the things that we now know that are important, such as social distancing, such as wearing a mask, such as hand washing or using gloves, uh, as mentioned by Dr. Grell and Dr. Landert, and I'll repeat this here as well, those are not going to go away. Those are things that are going to be increasingly important now and into the future, no matter if we have a vaccine or not. So I'm going to end here and look forward to take questions, and I know my colleagues will flesh out some of the things I've said in greater detail. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was really outstanding. A lot of good information, and, um, and I know there will be questions during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, and he's an author and researcher in oncology. Dr. Fleischman will be addressing the increasing role of telemedicine, telehealth appointments, with suggestions on how to prepare for these appointments to increase their benefit to you, and coping with increasing self-quarantine fatigue. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to all of you who have uh, participated in this a call today, uh, lots of information that we have to share, some things we can't be sure of, but we'll do our best to clarify what we can. Um, as far as uh, the telehealth visits, uh, everybody is aware that this is new to all of us as well as it is to patients all over. Um, all of us have been used to really seeing people in person, um, not using video, not using only a telephone, um, and um, having a face-to-face -face encounter for most of our follow-ups. Of course, we had phone calls in between, and, and patients and families were called with uh, questions, but uh, we were never as dependent on the technology as we are today. So it's been uh, a few months that we're doing this now, but I think everybody's getting better at it. Uh, I know providers that I work with are, and uh, patients say that it's a little more familiar to them as well. So uh, things that we've learned so far, uh, whether you're having a telehealth visit on the phone or especially online uh, through a, a video uh, mechanism, be it on your telephone or on a tablet or on your computer or any device, there are certain things to do to prepare for that. Um, the first thing is to make sure that you have the 
date and time set, and that's confirmed by the provider's office. Um, once that's done, if it's the first visit that you'll be making on the system and uh, technical people call this a platform in which uh, the visit occurs, there are many, uh, some tied to the um, Cancer Center's medical records, some are uh, separate companies, but it's a good idea to be able to practice or have a dry run in advance just to make sure that uh, the call goes through. Um, you know how to, um, as they say, as the tech people say, hop on to the call. Um, so uh, if it's the first time, ask someone in the provider's office to actually call you in advance or to uh, help you navigate the, uh, the system of the, or the platform. Sometimes a download has to occur to your device, sometimes not. It's just using your telephone with a camera and a microphone and a speaker. So find out about that all in advance and see if a dry run has been helpful um, to the other patients that are using this system. Having a quiet place uh, is really important. Um, thinking in advance what the questions are, and that's really no different than going into the provider's office and having um, making most the best use of the time you have together. It's even more important if the patient, him or herself, and the family member or the caregiver is in a different location. And this actually can be quite a benefit of the system that we're saddled with now. As much as we don't like it, there are some benefits that um, it, it sort of forces um, or highly encourages the uh, patient and the caregiver, family member, friend to have a discussion in advance about what's going on and what questions need to be asked and, and information that needs to be clarified. I'm not sure that um, all of us as patients stick to that um, and have stuck to that in the past, but it's ever more important now. Um, so uh, preparing for these visits really can be quite helpful. Um, many uh, patients are asking, well, how do you decide if I'm going to be able to come into the office or I, I need to use a, um, a, a, a technical uh, device to have my visit? And that really depends on a whole host of issues. It depends upon how prevalent COVID is in your area. It depends upon the distance you have to come. It depends upon um, your own resistance and how good or low that is based upon the treatment you're getting, um, your age. There are a lot of, of uh, factors that go into making this decision. And it's really a judgment call. And it's trying to weigh the, the, any of the risks of being exposed to COVID-19 when there is a technical alternative versus the need to be in the office because there's some aspect of the physical exam that just can't be done on a tablet or on your computer. So um, it, there's not a one-size-fits-all way to make these decisions. It really needs to be on a case-by-case -case basis. The other thing is that, uh, remember, going into the um, for an in-person visit often means that there isn't a family member allowed to come in, and the family member still needs to be on a telephone or a device outside. So uh, it's something to keep in mind and discuss with your providers. As far as COVID fatigue, yes, we all have it. <laughs> All of us, no one is exempt. Um, and in, in thinking about the kinds of things that are suggested to uh, make sure that we don't drop our guard and be vigilant of um, 
of contact with droplets from uh, other people, even people that we know and believe to be safe. Um, the kinds of things that was that have been written about recently as far as coping with this situation strike me as ex almost exactly the kinds of things that we have been suggesting all along for patients and families during the middle of treatment, particularly complicated cancer treatment with surgery when there's chemotherapy and radiation therapy, often chemotherapy and radiation therapy given at the same time or even sequentially. There's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of time, even with hefty treatment like that, that patients are not in the, at the moment of getting treatment. And as a result of that, these are the same sorts of things that seem to be discussed um, with COVID fatigue. Having a routine um, is I, what I, I found and patients and families have told me is really important. Um, getting up and knowing what you have to do for the day and scheduling um, enjoyable things as well as things that need to be done. Um, the last many years have uh, really started to stress the importance of proper nutrition and activity during cancer treatment. Same to combat COVID fatigue. Um, having some activity, physical activity to whatever ability you have, even uh, if it's just walking around your house or if you live in an apartment building out in the hallway and up and down the steps when there aren't other people around or whatever you and your treatment team uh, feel is within your uh, abilities and any limitations brought on by the cancer or its treatment. Um, so nutrition, activity, very helpful. Have identifying things where you can feel useful. Uh, sometimes that could be uh, volunteering, even if it's phone calls through um, any social organizations or religious organizations, um, uh, helping out their office. I've heard of people who have been helping out their church office by folding uh, letters, stuffing envelopes, and, and the kinds of busy work that the people in the office can't do. But something that makes you feel useful, uh, something that gives you pleasure, whether that's watching a movie that you haven't seen or listening to a book on a device or reading a book that you may not have gotten to otherwise or any sort of hobby that is um, that is safe for you to do during your treatment can be very helpful. Same thing in, um, in the middle of COVID. Being flexible is a, um, an important thing for all of us to do. We, we realize that the information coming at us is, uh, seems to be changing. Uh, maybe that's because the headlines only give us snippet of information. And when we get down to the details, the, tales are, the details have been pretty um, consistent as far as wearing masks, keeping our hands clean with sanitizer or hand washing for the proper number of seconds, um, social and physical distancing. Uh, but being aware that this is a, um, a changing situation, not because people don't know what they're doing, but because the information that we're learning in, in this, with this somewhat new disease can be changing as we do learn more about it. Um, the other thing that people have been describing, and I've even felt myself, is experiencing things differently. Um, for example, a um, patient who was unable to go to their church service was able to attend a live stream uh, from home. And um, 
he offhandedly said that it was a different experience for him because he wasn't involved with all the people around uh, and seeing who walked in and who was wearing what and the kinds of things that happen in large groups. He was said he was able to listen to the liturgy in a clearer way. Um, and that's something he wouldn't have been able to do if he was actually in church uh, attending the service. So finding things that we see differently and that we experience differently um, may be somewhat of a silver lining in um, in uh, the the stresses of of having a pandemic and being in the middle of cancer treatment or after cancer treatment all at the same time. Um, those are the kinds of things that have been published and I've been hearing from patients. And with that, I will turn the, the program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was very, very informative and very helpful to everybody. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Judith Nelson. Dr. Nelson is Chief Supportive Care Service, attending Clinical Care Service Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Nelson is going to describe the role of supportive care and talking with your, with your loved ones and healthcare team about your wishes and healthcare directives. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Nelson. Thank you so much, Carolyn, uh, and thank you to uh, the gentleman who spoke before me on the panel and really uh, provided some excellent background on cancer and COVID-19 and their interface. Um, Dr. Grala started off defining some terms, and I want to do the same thing because many people are not clear what supportive care, which is also sometimes called palliative care, really means. The way I define it and the way our field likes to define it is that supportive and palliative care provide an extra layer of support for patients and families facing cancer. And then the question comes up, support for what? Many people think that supportive and palliative care are the same thing as hospice care and that they are appropriate only at the end of life and that the support that is provided is for dying, which, of course, is an important job, and palliative care specialists do have expertise in this, but really the way we define palliative care is that it's about how you live. And that is not something that folks should be afraid of. And in fact, they should embrace the availability of palliative care um, because it is uh, complementary to the cancer care that you're receiving or any care for a serious and complex illness. Palliative and supportive care are about how you maximize your life, both in terms of its quantity and its quality, and those two things are not mutually exclusive. They really are mutually enhancing. Now, cancer brings along with it a variety of types of distress and burdens, um, and these fall into a number of categories, and the role of palliative care is really to try to mitigate and decrease and help folks with this distress. And I will say that COVID has added to overall distress for all of us, and certainly cancer patients have not been excluded from that. But types of distress that people experience are, first of all, 
physical. People have physical symptoms. They may feel short of breath. They may feel pain, and this could be from COVID or it could be from the underlying cancer. Many, many people have psychological distress. There is no shame in that. Life itself makes a lot of challenges uh, psychologically, and certainly layering cancer on top of that adds additional challenges. People have social challenges. They may have spiritual challenges, trying to find meaning in their lives and a sense of being part of something bigger than themselves. And that moves over also into the area of what we call existential challenges. And on a practical level, people are going through a healthcare system in which it is often not smooth sailing. There are bumps along the road. People are moving sometimes from outpatient clinics to an inpatient setting and in the reverse direction, and those transitions are not always smooth. Palliative care can and should be involved in all of these areas to try to alleviate the distress that sometimes accompanies cancer for patients and their families. Who provides palliative care? Well, a specialist is not always involved or necessary. Uh, in fact, most of the time, palliative care is very well provided by the oncologists and their teams taking care of you. And in my mind, the fewer people involved in care, the better, unless problems are really complex or unless the usual solutions to the problems just aren't working well. And then a specialist may be necessary, but ideally that specialist is not separated from your regular cancer team, but is working very, very closely with your team to make the care coordinated and coherent. When your own oncology team is providing palliative care, and again, we're talking primarily about reducing distress and some other things, we call that primary or non-specialist palliative care. And when someone who is certified and trained and specializes in palliative care is also involved, we call that specialist palliative care. Both are very important. They should be very well coordinated, and they are appropriate for anyone who has need. So a need cuts across prognosis. Prognosis and stage of disease are not the same thing as need. Many people with very good outlook on their cancer may still have needs and different forms of distress that can be assisted by palliative care, either at a primary level or a specialty level. I would also add that it's a major role for palliative and supportive care to help you patients and your families to get the information and make sense of the information you need from your oncology team and your other caregivers. And not just to get information, but to share information that you have with your team and convey to the team information about yourself. So your team brings to you expertise in cancer and the cancer treatment. But what you bring to them is the expertise about you, about yourself as a person, about what is important to you, and about what life means to you and what living well means to you. 
And those two things have to go together, the expertise about the cancer and the treatment and the expertise about you as yourself, a unique individual with your own values. They have to go together to make sure that cancer care is the right care for you as a person and that your care is aligned with your values and your goals and your preferences. And I would say in this day and age, one of the things that is most difficult for people and most important is the uncertainty that we face. So what you heard today is a lot of fantastic information very clearly digested, very understandable about what we know. And what you've also heard is what we don't know. And this has continued to be a problem in the COVID pandemic for cancer patients. We certainly know much more now than we knew early in the pandemic back at the end of February and March. But we still have many, many unanswered questions about how we take care of cancer patients best when we are surrounded by this epidemic, this pandemic, and some of those questions have been asked and addressed by my colleagues. What I want to leave you with in this situation of uncertainty is, again, the importance of making clear for yourself and the people who care for you, both your formal professional caregivers on your cancer team and the other healthcare providers, but also for your own people, your family, the people who help you make decisions, your informal caregivers, what is important to you as a person? Because the decisions that have to be made about your care, whether they're made with you directly, which of course is always the best, or if God forbid you're too ill to participate fully in those kinds of decisions, for someone else to have you still be in the room with them, in a sense, by conveying what you hold most important. And I don't have slides today, but I will offer you eight questions that I think you want to think about and perhaps write down for yourself that you can think on and share with your family and with your care team if you are interacting with them. And one is a question that is called the dignity question. And we ask with that question, what should I know about you? What should we know about you to take the best care of you? That's for you to tell us. What should we know about you to take the best care of you? Not the things that are in your medical record, which we can find. Not your laboratory values. But what do you want to tell us? about yourself that will help us take better care of you as a person, not a patient, but a person. A second question is, what gives you strength? When you're facing cancer, what do you look to for your solid ground in the face of shifting situations around you? That's important so that people know what you turn to and can help you and guide you there if you need it. What worries you? Some people think, well, why do you even ask me that? Of course I'm worried. I'm worried about having cancer. I'm worried about getting COVID. I'm worried about the two of them together. But it's good to air those worries. And as someone said to me from our Patient and Family Advisory Council, 
yes, you know, I really am worried, but actually no one ever asked me what I worry about. And it's important to ask, and it's important for you to identify that. The fourth question is, what does living well mean to you at this time? And I have asked this question of my own family members. Fortunately, I even asked it of my very elderly father, who I lost this year, but I knew what living well meant to him in these very golden, important times of his life. And you want people to know what it means to you. What do you hope for? And many people with cancer, of course, hope to beat it, to survive it, or to live as long as they can, and that is legitimate. And then ask yourself, what else do I hope for besides that? What are other hopes? And keep asking what else and what else until you get even beyond cure of the cancer to other things that are important to you that you are hoping for. We ask, and this can be challenging for you to think about, and no one is saying that these important abilities will ever be taken away from you, and our goal is to keep them with you. But you should ask yourself, are there any abilities that are so important to you that you can't imagine living without them? And you may change your mind about that. People tend to get more and more satisfied with less and less if they have to, and that is a wonderful adaptive thing about human beings. But there are also people who have a bottom line about something that is so important to them, and other people should know that as they make decisions with you. Number seven, I always say to patients, some people want to be very clear about what would happen if, God forbid, a crisis occurred where, for example, their heart stopped or they couldn't breathe. Do you want to talk about that? And if you are not a person who wants to be clear about that, then there is no reason to talk about it at that time. If you are that person, then you should have an opportunity to say how you feel about it. And the last question and this is really the most important question, is have you discussed this with your family? And this was already mentioned. You must discuss these things with your family. They do not necessarily know how you feel, even if you think they do. I was surprised when I asked my own father this question. You need to speak with them, and it takes a burden off their shoulders to know how you feel in case they're making decisions for you at a time when you're too ill to fully participate in those. So this is what I have to say. One of the hardest things during COVID has been that people have at times in the hospital or in other places where they stay been separated from their families. And I think that is the most difficult aspect of this illness. If you need medical care, fortunately, in most hospitals now, there are, plan there are visiting hours. You need to know what they are so that you have the opportunity to be with your people. You should also have ways that you can contact them and video with them if you need to. Um, but these are the things to keep in mind. And most importantly, to think to yourself about what is most important to you as you live in the face of illness or in the face of 
cure or however you live, cancer will touch your life, and what's important to you as a person is very important to the people who care for you. And I'll leave it at that for now, and we can take more questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Nelson. That was really excellent. I do want to let everyone know that at the end of this program, you'll be getting a, a SurveyMonkey evaluation, and um, I'll ask Dr. Nelson to actually um, email the, me again. I know you were all taking notes, but nevertheless, email me those specific questions in a format that she feels would be helpful to you all have, and we'll include that for you. So you'll, and anything else anyone else mentions that, um, and even something we don't mention that we think would be useful to you, we'll include as well in your, so it's an evaluation, but it also is a chance for us to give you some additional information. So, um, now, our next speaker is Dr. Lori Weiner. Dr. Weiner is an oncology social worker, and she is, I'm sorry, she's a pediatric oncology social worker, and she is co-director of behavioral health care, director, psycho, psychosocial support and research program, pediatric oncology branch, Center for Cancer Research, National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health. And Dr. Weiner is going to be addressing helping children and teens during this pandemic and tips to communicate with children and teens about coping with COVID-19. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Weiner. Thank you, Dr. Misner, and I thank all of you for joining this call today. I'm truly honored to join this esteemed panel. There's no doubt that life has changed significantly for all of us. By now, you may be experiencing pandemic fatigue, like you just heard from Dr. Fleischman, from the months of trying to deal with the changed lifestyle and the challenges that have come with it. And even if you found really effective ways to help your children cope, they may be struggling to, still may be struggling to limit meltdowns that can come with uncertainty, boredom, poor sleep, or even changes in schedule, or struggling with children who appear irritable, fatigued despite sleep, who are less motivated to engage in family activities. If so, please know this is not unique to you. In June, I had the wonderful opportunity to join this call, and today I'm going to update what I talked about then with some more tips, and they all still start with the letter C. Starting with calm, children take their cues from the adult in their life. If we're constantly checking the news or washing the floors or they hear us talking about the train of terribles that come from the new surge of COVID infections, our children will sense this anxiety and may react by becoming more anxious. So when you feel your own emotions are being hijacked by fear, try to find a way to calm down, whatever works for you. Perhaps try to find time each day for at least one health stress-reducing activity, and Dr. Fleischman gave so many great examples. Along these lines, teaching children how to take a pause is very helpful, though not easy. For young children, I really like the book, A World of Pausibilities by Imagination Press, which gently provides mindfulness techniques. Continuity. We know that consistency and structure are especially calming during times of high stress. Children, especially those who tend to be anxious, not only desire, but they need stability. Your children rely on you, their parents, to be that strength for them. Even when you think you can't be strong, try to deep down, go down, deep down inside and know this is an opportunity to help your children realize that they can get through some big things themselves. Some specific tips at home may be breaking up unstructured periods during the day, Remember to add meal times and snacks to the schedule. We know that children are more likely to look for food and not necessarily healthy food throughout the day when they're home doing school. Review what schedule you create with your family often, including your own medical care, 
and keep the schedule in a place for all to see. Revise it if and when needed. And remember, lots of praise for things that go well and a sense of humor is essential. Then control. With much outside of our control right now, it's time to shift our energy and focus to what we do know and what parents can control. Review a what-if, then-what scenario with your children. This could be very helpful so that you have a concrete plan if something on your child's what-if list does occur. Help your child create a self-care plan or toolbox with activities and items they can use when they're feeling stressed. I like activities that engage the senses. Think about five things you could see. Let's think about four things you could hear, three things you could touch, two things you could smell, and one thing you could taste. Helping your child focus on his or her senses can really anchor your child in the present and help them relax in the moment. If that's too much for your child, just focus on what they're hearing. For example, let's stay quiet for a moment together, and then we'll share all the sounds around us that we notice. By illustrating activities that help keep us calm or grounded, we're modeling positive behavior to our children. Next is connection. Social support is a protection for good mental health, and reducing isolation is key. Find ways as a family to be creative about new ways to socially interact with family or friends. For example, families may like to have breakfast with grandparents, teens may join a friend for lunch, or families may have virtual dinner or ice cream socials with family and friends using FaceTime or another social media platform. But during this time, we just need to be more intentional about our communication and connections. Way back in the mid 1980s, the 1800s, Darwin told us that the greatest predictor of resilience was collaboration and cohesiveness. This is a time to reach out to each other. We will be changed by becoming stronger and more resilient, having learned lessons about ourselves and about each other. But while many kids are resilient, they aren't resilient in a vacuum. They need to know that there is a person there for them. And asking help Asking for help is hard, so resilience is being able to identify who can help and being able to ask for help. This goes for all of us and a great lesson for our children. And cohesion. During the pandemic with such togetherness, families can get very stressed and conflict can be increased, particularly for those that are trying to manage virtual hybrid learning. It's important that during this time, attention is given to individual needs and the needs of the family and family relationships. Talk as a family about what you could do to rediscover kind of rituals that may have gotten lost along the way. For example, how and when we have meals together, nighttime prayers, or think about creating other ways to foster a cohesive home. And try to have a regular time to talk. I'm a big advocate of family meetings, weekly family meetings, to talk about the past and upcoming week. Things that went well, were stressful, things to look forward to, any changes. Children benefit from consistency and knowing this could be a time when anything can be brought up and can end with a fun family tradition, such as ice cream or a card game. And then changes. You may have lost loved ones or jobs. You may have missed out on experiences and life milestones like graduations, weddings, or even funerals. You may be feeling cooped up or cut off from hobbies or ways of socializing. You may be feeling tired or trying to make good use of this time. I read somewhere, if I hear one more person, one more time, that Shakespeare wrote King Lear while in quarantine during a pandemic, I'm going to lose it. But what we can do is channel our creativity, to think together about expressive outlets that you can provide at home. Some families have planted a garden together and look forward to seeing vegetable grows. 
give the bedroom a makeover, make paper pinwheels, cloud dough, take a virtual tour through a famous art museum or through famous gardens, cities that you've always wanted to visit. It just takes a commitment to make sure that this is added to the family time together. And you may want to consider creating activities about the pandemic. Similar to other natural disasters, pandemics mark a defining moment in memories in the lives of those affected that may not be immediately understood for children. How about create a COVID-19 timeline? Major events surrounding the pandemic, starting when you first and where the pandemic first began, when you first began sheltering in place, when you first went out, or if you decided to shelter back in place again. Depending on the child's age, this can get more sophisticated and be experienced as a sense of empowerment for others. And then managing cancer care. We know children worry about their family members, especially when a parent or grandparent is undergoing cancer treatment. So inform your child of any changes to your own treatment, even about treatment being postponed or administered in a different form. And assure your child that the doctors are doing their very best to care for you and what the plan might be if you did get sick. Just be honest with your child about the impact COVID may have on your health, including additional risks and the need for your family to stay safe. And last, self-compassion. This is, this is real. It is okay to feel anxious, scared, or angry right now. Accepting and validating these feelings is important. We're all having them. So letting your children know that it's okay to sit with these emotions rather than fighting them is a lesson they can use well beyond the pandemic. We are all building our tolerance for uncomfortable feelings and learning we can coexist with them. And anxiety, we know, can be exhausting. While we all modify our definition of what a good day is, be kind to yourself when things don't go exactly as you had hoped. Celebrate what you are doing, big or small, especially if feelings like guilt, those we all have, experience start bubbling up, like joining us here today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wayne. That was really excellent, really outstanding. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Lauren Chatelian. And uh, uh, Ms. Chatelian is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she's our Women and Children's Program Manager. And Ms. Chatelian will be addressing tips to manage the practical, emotional, and financial stresses related to COVID-19 and cancer, self-care and stress management suggestions, and Cancer Care's free programs and services. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelian. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, and thank you to our panel of ex experts for such important information today. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include case management, counseling, support groups, educational workshops, publications, as well as possible limited financial assistance and co-payment assistance. During this pandemic, Cancer Care has created several resources relevant to COVID-19. On Cancer Care's website, there is a COVID-19 landing page that includes recorded educational workshops, publications, a podcast mini-series, as well as blog and advocacy efforts. This information can be very useful in navigating many presenting concerns related to COVID-19. Physical, social, and emotional challenges may arise when diagnosed with cancer throughout one's treatment as well as post-treatment. It can be beneficial to determine ways to approach challenges that may surface, 
And throughout our program today, we recognize how the current pandemic can impact a cancer diagnosis as well. During this time, you may notice that certain activities or techniques that you have put in place to help cope through diagnosis and treatment could be paused or altered. This may be a time of finding new hobbies within your home, becoming creative, and even possibly learning something new. It may also be helpful to, to focus on strengthening self-care practices. Self-care is defined as the practice of taking an active role in protecting one's own well-being, particularly during periods of stress. This absolutely varies person to person, so can continue to discover what works for you. This may also change over time. Some suggestions related to self-care include journaling, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, or listening to music or podcasts. Also, breathing techniques can offer a quick reset when feeling stressed or overwhelmed. You may also consider connecting with nature by going on a hike or a walk while adhering to social distancing requirements. Continue to speak to your medical team about precautions related to COVID-19 as you explore these options. If your support system feels distant during the pandemic, see if there may be an option to connect over the phone or online, as some of our speakers have mentioned today. Continue to engage with others. Continue to connect with people who have common interests or who may be going through a similar experience as you, such as through virtual meeting programs. And please remember you are not alone. You may find that others are feeling similarly to you during this time, and it's very possible they're looking for someone to connect with as well. Individuals may choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group or engaging in counseling. Many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations offer supportive services. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. A support group may help to reduce feelings of loneliness and help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. Cancer Care offers several online national support groups that can be registered right through our website. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker, counselor, or therapist can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. This may include adjusting to and finding new ways of coping throughout treatment that is tailored to an individual. At this time, groups and individualized support may be accessed virtually or by telephone to be more accessible during COVID. Individuals may experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment, especially during this pandemic. It may be helpful to discuss any financial concerns with your medical providers, as well as connecting with a social worker, patient navigator, and the financial department at the treatment center to see if there are any financial options available to you. In addition, continue to review your medical insurance coverage as well as your monthly expenses. You could consider seeking advice on your financial situation from a professional, such as an accountant or financial planner as well. Please know that if you are encountering financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help. As I mentioned earlier, Cancer Care provides free national case management services. We offer a short-term short-term strength-based approach to case management where the social worker will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. On Cancer Care's COVID landing page, there's also a list of organizations that may be providing COVID relief assistance. 
As we have listened to our panel of experts today, we recognize how COVID can specifically affect an individual diagnosed with cancer, as well as loved ones and caregivers. This is a challenging, uncertain time for many people. Continue to find ways to connect with others, focus on your physical, emotional, and mental health, and consider alternative ways of seeking joy and comfort. If you are interested in learning more about the support services Cancer Care offers, I can I encourage you to call our national hope line and you'll be able to speak to one of our oncology social workers and explore the ways in which we can offer cancer focused support and resources. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be a part of this very important program today. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Italian. That was really outstanding, a wonderful presentation. And now before we take questions from our expert expert speakers. Um, we have just a few more questions to ask you before the call, and just to see what you now, what your learning has been during the program. So there are just four questions. The first one is, um, as a result of this workshop, I am more prepared to protect myself and my loved ones from COVID-19. And again, you would just answer that yes or no. And for those of you who are live streaming, you'll be able to see that question. Thank you. And our next question is, as a result of this workshop, I am more prepared to cope with quarantine fatigue, either yes or no. And the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I am more prepared to talk with loved ones and the healthcare team about my wishes and healthcare directives, yes or no. And this will be the last question. As a result of this workshop, I am more prepared to talk with my children and teens about coping with COVID-19, yes or no. I want to thank you all for participating in this the questions here, and it really helps us in planning future programs. And now we have time for questions um, f um, from a panel of experts. I'm going to ask uh, Sonia to bring all of our experts on board, all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And I'm going to start with the first question um, for Dr. Leonard, um, and this is a question having to do with um, uh, safety and monitoring um, uh, board um, in terms of the uh, the information, um, the accuracy of information, reliability of information that we're receiving about uh, vaccines. If you could comment on this, Dr. Um, Dr. Leonard. Sure. Well, studies, clinical trials um, are monitored through a variety of different uh, bodies or uh, groups that look at the safety these, of the of what's being studied. Uh, these include the FDA. These may include scientists at a company that's sponsoring the study. They may include the local what we call institutional review board at a at the center where the patients are being treated. 
And for big, large studies, there is often what's called a data safety monitoring board, which uh, in real time or close to real time looks at the data coming out of the study and monitors it for safety. And also in what we call randomized trials, where there are two groups of patients getting two different things. In the case of, of a vaccine, a vaccine versus a placebo vaccine, for instance, uh, would an analyze the data, and if there are things that are important findings, uh, would look at that data and either uh, act on that data if it impacted patient safety, i.e., if something were unsafe or if something were dramatically effective that it wouldn't be appropriate to keep going with the study but to uh, move forward and let people know and act upon that information. And so what you sometimes see is uh, a report or a release from the Data Safety Monitoring Board, which is uh, informing the public or the sponsor or the, the patients participating uh, as to those findings. And so uh, that that is, uh, in a nutshell, the complicated way studies are, uh, are uh, monitored. And in fact, you may see that information come out either through a press release because this is important relevant information for the public to know about uh, or as the final studies are reported uh, with more details and so all of these press releases and things that people hear about in the news over time uh, will be followed up with full-length reports and lots and lots of data once uh, all those involved have the time to analyze all the information as well as have enough time go by so that the uh, longer-term uh, information and results are available. Just a follow-up question to that one was uh, just in terms of uh, do, are some types of cancer more um, amenable to the uh, vaccine than others at this point? Do we know? Well, I think there, we do know that some cancer patients, depending on the treatment, and I would say in particular blood cancer patients, uh, may be less prone to uh, mount an immune response that you heard about from Dr. Wang because their immune systems may be affected either by the nature of their cancer or the nature of their treatment. And so we will need to study this very carefully. It's not necessarily a given that cancer patients uh, will respond to or have a good effect to a vaccine. Um, and so we need to see that. It may be that uh, it's perfectly fine and the vaccine will work in some groups of cancer patients. It may be that the vaccine doesn't work as well. This may be more of a concern uh, in blood cancer patients, but again, the devil's in the details and we really need to look at the results in that uh, group of patients specifically before we can draw any conclusions. So thank you so much. Um, and um, we have another question, um, and this one for... Uh, I guess for Dr. Fleischman, what about outdoor dining at restaurants? I've heard conflicting information. Oh, all of us have heard conflicting information about that. Um, outdoor dining uh, is thought to be uh, somewhat safer because there's better air circulation than if one was sitting inside a restaurant with closed windows or even with a very robust air conditioning system. Um, so it seems like air moves uh, past we passed all of the uh, diners more quickly, and uh, that's thought to reduce the risk of droplet infection between people. Um, but you still need to 
follow all the other guidelines, which is to keep a mask on when you're not eating, um, especially when you're sitting down or going to the bathroom, um, to have a distance between uh, you and people who you're not living with uh, so that droplets aren't passed across the table when you're eating and to wash hands and use hand sanitizer repeatedly um, so that you don't pass something on to someone else. Dustin, thank you. And we have a question um, for Dr. Grawa. Um, so the question is, I tested positive when my family had COVID-19 but was asymptomatic. Does that mean that I am immune to the virus? And it's a complicated question. So if you could answer in a general way, I think that is an issue that a okay. lot of questions that people have. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people uh, wonder, uh, did I actually have COVID? And uh, again, being exposed uh, to people. So the best way to try to address that is to get that blood test to see if you do have antibodies. Now, uh, if you indeed have antibodies, it uh, is a, a very great likelihood that indeed you were exposed to the uh, the COVID-19 and probably had an asymptomatic case if, if you uh, um, indeed didn't have any symptoms or if you'd had some symptoms that those were due to the uh, to an infection. Uh, on the other hand, uh, no one quite knows at this time just how long having those antibodies or the strength of those antibodies will protect you um, uh, and, uh, you know, to what degree that is. There is great hope that there will be terrific protection, but uh, uh, that answer is not yet known. Um, so if you're curious, uh, don't just assume. Uh, do uh, uh, get yourself uh, an antibody test, which if you call your medical center, your doctor, is pretty easy to arrange. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Wong, should we be washing our groceries, food and veggies from the grocery store? Again, that's a, that's a good question, and I'll ask my colleagues to weigh in as well. And there was a suggestion that, these, uh, that you could transmit uh, um, COVID-19 through in, inanimate objects. Um, I think overall, you have, I, I'll tell you what I tell my own uh, family. It, it depends on the degree of risk. And I think if you put it into the context uh, uh, for situations in which you can do so, uh, I, I think it, uh, I would sort of, you know, wipe down the exterior of uh, packaging that come to you uh, to the degree that's practical. But really, if you sort of weigh things in, uh, uh, the things we talked about before, the social distancing, the mask wearing, the, the, the hand washing, uh, uh, all the things that we talked about here, I mean, you take a higher level of precedence uh, than uh, the simple act of washing things down. Um, but to the degree that's possible, my advice has been to do so. Excellent. Thank you. Does anyone else want to comment on that? Well, for, for years during chemotherapy and radiation, we've talked about making sure your fruit and vegetables are clean. So we wouldn't do anything less now. Okay. Excellent. Interesting question. Um, Dr. Grala, do you foresee the vaccine being administered at home for patients with limited mobility issues? Uh, I think that's such a great idea. Um, 
I would am encouraging my medical center and others to come up with those plans now before we have the vaccine. We know that some of these vaccines will be uh, difficult to store and keep uh, fresh, and others of them will not be so difficult. But we need to devise ways to deliver the vaccine, both at the medical center and where outreach is important to do so. We need to identify those people within our medical centers who can uh, administer the vaccine. That's an awful lot of physicians and nurses who could do it. So once the distribution occurs and we all have questions, we hear that uh, you know the military is going to uh, be doing this, once it's delivered, how are we going to uh, distribute it and make sure that everybody has an easy opportunity to get vaccinated. So I would love to see a very efficient service uh, going into the home uh, for for many people uh, to do so, and perhaps not to administer just to the one person, but perhaps to the whole family at the same time. So I, I think that our medical centers ought to be thinking about that right now. Excellent. Fantastic. So great questions, great speakers. Thank you so much. There's just a few more questions, and then we're going to conclude. Um, um, a question for Dr. Weiner in terms of um, uh, the, uh, the uh, this is an online question about having children of different ages. And so how does one explain to children of different ages, both young and teens, and just um, about um, coping with COVID-19? Um, and what would you suggest in terms of separate conversations, uh, language used, if you could, I know you often cover that. Yes, that is an excellent question. Um, you can't explain things as the question implies the same way for a young child as you would for a teen. And the most important thing that I always start with is asking, what, trying to get a sense of what they know about COVID and what their worries and concerns can be and taking it from there. I think parents sometimes get themselves into trouble when they try to give too much information too technical, which could be a little more overwhelming for children. So it would be sometimes with younger children is really withdrawing. Um, and once you understand what they, their questions are and once they know, and there are some wonderful books and workbooks that they could be able to use. For um, a middle school child, they probably have learned a little bit about virology or, you know, in, in their in some of their classes, and they may have different questions. It really depends. Again, it, they may be just really worried about their grandparents, and they may be worried about their parents, and that's what their main concern may be. And for those who are really concerned about themselves getting, you know, the infection, they could be able to, you know, address that. A lot of the times for the teenagers and the young adults, it's the great impact it's had on their life and what their future would look like. And and being able to be there to be able to address their individual concerns. So starting off by finding out what they know, what their biggest concerns or worries are, and then being able to address them based on their own developmental um, you know, history and their cognitive abilities and emotional availability um, is what I would recommend. And there's great resources I'm happy to share. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Weiner. Um, and, um, and then a question for Dr. Nelson, just in terms of the role of supportive care at the outset of COVID um, diagnosis. Could you just comment on that? So again, I think um, there's variability in need for palliative care, uh, uh, and it's not necessarily uh, dependent on 
the clinical level of illness. When people have questions about uh, their status, they feel that they're not either getting or giving information that they feel should be exchanged, or if they have symptoms that they're concerned about that are not being treated optimally, uh, then one would begin with the primary team that one is working with. But if the problems are not resolving easily or it feels like they're particularly complex or refractory, then it would be appropriate to ask about involvement of a palliative care expert. Certainly people in you know, life-threatening situations uh, do want to be sure that they're getting absolute uh, expertise for themselves and their loved, or their loved ones um, for symptom control and decision-making. Um, and most of the time this can be provided by the primary team, but you ideally will have, uh, at least in the background, uh, the ability for the team to be supported by a palliative care professional. Thank you. Thanks. And also, last question from Chatelian. Um, so, the issue of um, being in an online group—if you could comment on that for um, for our participants here who might wish to participate in one of our online groups—if you could comment on that um, um, for our participants. Yeah. How to Yeah. How to register or how what it's like? Yes, and what it's like. Yes, what it's yes. like actually. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. So the online groups um, through Cancer Care are national and are um, specific to diagnoses um, or, you know, populations such as those diagnosed as well as caregivers, loved ones, um, and those can be accessed right on our website. So it'll be under our services. Um, if you go to the main page, go to our services and then support groups and you'll see what is available to you. Um, the online support group program is um, a discussion board. Um, so you can post, you know, 24 seven. It's not like a chat, but it is an ongoing discussion board. It's not, you know, video or virtual. It is uh, strictly typing in and an oncology social worker um, facilitates and moderates the group throughout the week as well. So it is a great way to connect with others um, if you're open to, you know, the discussion board format. We've had a lot of great feedback. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. And I want to thank all of our participants for asking such great questions. And we have many more questions in queue, so I do want to recognize it. And we have gone a bit over for today, and I want to thank all of you for, for staying with us, Ashley. Um, and um, we definitely will be planning more programs like this, clearly, because, indeed, there's many more questions. So in concluding the program today, I want to remind all of you that for those of you who asked a question and for those of you who heard answers to questions or for those of you who still have questions that yet to be answered, please take them back to your healthcare team, even if you asked a question, and run it past your team in terms of how how the how the information you received, how it applies to you. That's really important because they know you the best. They know everything about you, and it would be good to compare notes. Also, we hope that the information you've learned today will serve to make you feel a little bit more confident in asking your questions. And also, you can see our speakers are so eager to answer your questions that that will also apply to your healthcare teams as well. Also, you do have um, quite a listing of all the services you can access from Cancer Care, um, and we are simply a phone call away or uh, mouse click away um, in terms of just being able to connect with our services at Cancer Care. And also, we do have lots of other resources um, to connect you with as well. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, 
we really don't want anybody to feel alone. Although, of course, it, it, it is, this is a time when many people do feel alone because, indeed, a social distancing, holidays coming up, all of these things. Nevertheless, we want you to know that you're now connected to a quite a large resource of services that you can access. Um, some are during business hours, some are 24 hours a day, and so that you can access them and your healthcare team as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This includes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.